Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com, and we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to linode.com changelog. This episode is brought to you by Linode, our cloud server of choice. Everything we do here at Changelog is hosted on Linode servers. Pick a plan, pick a distro, and pick a location, and in seconds, deploy your virtual server. Drawworthy hardware, SSD cloud storage, 40 gigabit network, Intel E5 processors, simple, easy control panel, nine data centers, three regions, anywhere in the world they've got you covered. Head to lindo.com slash changelog and get $20 in hosting credit. Welcome back, everyone. This is the Changelog, a podcast featuring the hackers, leaders, and innovators of open source. I'm Adam Stokowiak, editor-in-chief of Changelog. On today's show, we're talking with Sean Griffin about doing Rails full-time, his love of Rust, and his project, Diesel, a safe, extensible ORM and query builder for Rust. We talked about Sean's path to working on Rails full-time, what he works on specifically, why Rust, why Diesel, and how much of Diesel's design and feature set is a product of his experience with Active Record and Rails. All right, I'll jump right into it. <clears throat> added helper types for inner join and left outer join. Diesel debug query has been added as a replacement for debug SQL. Is this your change log? Added support. Yeah, is this not where I come on and dramatically read Diesel's <laughs> change log? <laughs> that was pretty good. That was good. Yeah, keep going. Oh, oh, crap, like... I'm way I'm way unprepared if that's not what this is about. <laughs> I was entertained for a split second. <laughs> Literally the changelog. Love it. Uh, sorry, I had to get one dad joke in early on. <laughs> I came up with that one like two days ago. I've been, I've been waiting for it. <laughs> I like it. We should leave that in. I, I don't know why. This is tape, man. Let's go. All right. Let's go. <laughs> well, now that we know what kind of guy you are, Sean, um, <laughs> you'll fit right in here on the show. Um, but we want to talk, we have two subject lines, I, I believe they're intertwined as most things are, and that's the subject of you full time on Rails uh, and your work there on Active Record. And then secondly, uh, what you're up to with Diesel, which is an ORM and query builder for Rust and the interrelation between those two things. But let's start off learning a little bit more about you and your path to uh, what we often call living the dream, which is working on open source full time. Um, and in a way that seems like a pretty awesome way. So tell us about your work with Rails, how you got involved, and how you ended up full-time at Shopify. Sure. Um, so let's see. So I got started with Rails, uh, gosh, like four years ago now, I think. Um, I had done a commit here or there, but nothing uh, particularly major. But I'd been on uh, some projects for a while that all sort of had these weird, similar needs in terms of modifying uh, at attribute accessors on active record objects. And then at, I think it was RubyConf like four or five years ago, uh, Ernie Miller gave a talk where he was talking about how Rails is missing a lot of uh, APIs that are kind of one level down in abstraction. And so all of this culminated in me wanting to build out what is now today known as the Attributes API. Uh, and just so happened that... Um, Aaron Patterson was, I, I lived in Denver at the time, and he was in town for a uh, local meetup to give a talk. Uh, so I went out with him for drinks afterwards and was like, hey, I have this idea for this API. I got really, it sounds polite, but I was actually really drunk and kind of shouting at him about this API. <laughs> um, Whatever works. Uh, 
But anyway, so he was like, yeah, sure, whatever. Do it. <laughs> I think I think he was partially just trying to get me to stop asking him about this idea that I had, since the majority of people who do that are never going to follow through. Um, anyway, the uh, that resulted in a pull request that was way too large to be reviewed, and then a series of smaller pull requests over time, and ultimately I vastly underestimated the amount of work that implementing that was going to require, and when it was all said and done, I had rewritten a significant chunk of active record for, like, non-association and non-ARL-related things. Mm. Um, at which point I was like, well, crap. I guess I'm maintaining this code for the rest of my life. Um, <laughs> so that, I assume and, that got merged then. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, what was that feeling like to, to feel like you're maintaining it for the rest of your life? Are you being facetious? Or are you being serious? Uh, I mean, both. Like, I didn't really go, well, I'm maintaining this for the rest of my life. But, yeah, I mean, it ultimately was part of why I ended up sticking around was just because I felt a responsibility to be around to fix the bugs in this code that I had submitted and, and uh, I don't know, kind of make sure that it continued to evolve in the way I had envisioned. So just real quick for clarity for those who are not in the Ruby and Rails scene, Active Record is the ORM or the database library that ships with Ruby on Rails and is a significant portion of the Rails code base and probably a significant portion of the complexity and a lot of the bugs. And so rewriting any small subset of Active Record itself is not a small undertaking. Um, and probably, Sean, you know better than anybody at this point as maintainer of Active Record. While thousands, if not you know, tens or twenty thousand or hundreds of thousands of people use Active Record, there's probably a you know a group of people that you could count on one or two hands that are intimately familiar with the way that it works. Is that fair? Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, and to give some actual numbers, I don't know what it is in the code base today, but around Rails 4.2, uh, so not including Action Cable and not including um, uh, Active Storage. Um, Active Record accounted for about eighty percent of our code base, wow. and back then, I would I would say it was uh, about eighty percent of our issues as well. Um, certainly, I, I would guess the percentage of the code base uh, of the code base has gone down just because we've added two additional libraries, but uh, probably still similar, probably like seventy percent, I would guess. Although interestingly, I've been noticing that it it is starting to become a smaller percentage of our uh, opened issues, which is good. Yeah, you can probably see that as a win since you've been dedicating a lot of your time there. Yeah. Um, so you you open up this massive PR, uh, this idea that you, you were challenging Aaron Patterson, who was then very involved with Rails. I'm not sure his current status. In fact, he was full-time on Rails, I believe, working for AT&T Interactive, or somebody yep. was paying him full-time to work on Rails back then. He now works at GitHub, and I'm assuming is still very much involved. Um, and so he said, go ahead and do it. You went out and and accomplish this goal and now now a lot of the active record code base is your own and so you began maintaining it um that doesn't get us to full-time at shopify so tell us like the personal slash business end of that same timeline and how you ended up being able to do this as your job uh yeah so i mean i guess the first thing is is when i decided that this is what i wanted to do because uh, it's funny, you call it living the dream, and to a certain extent, I kind of call it living the nightmare. Um, that's that's the great irony, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, but basically, I'm bad at work-life balance. Um, and if I 
I, I started to realize that if I didn't do this as my full-time job, I had two full-time jobs. Mm. Um, so I set out to, to switch doing it full-time simply because uh, I'm, I, I'm bad at convincing myself to, to not work. And if I, if I didn't do it uh, during work hours, I was just going to be doing the same amount of work on my own time. So it was purely a move for my own sanity. Um, I sort of really started to get a taste for like actually spending a significant amount of my time doing it. Uh, I was working at ThoughtBot as a consultant at the time, uh, and I had some significant downtime between projects. Uh, and so that was when I really started to get to uh, try to start spend more of my work hours doing it. And uh, I'd been looking for ways to uh, convince management that it was a worthwhile thing for me to be able to continue doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, ultimately, just the interest didn't didn't align there, um, so I ended up leaving, and uh, I ended up at Shopify because uh, basically I went to conferences and begged a lot of people to give me money, and uh, Shopify ultimately uh, was a company that saw the value proposition. Because like when you say full time open source, it's a convenient mm-hmm. way of kind of summing up a job with the emphasis on the focus of your job is working on open source. It by no means me, it, it does not mean that I spend 100% of my time working on open source. Mm-hmm. Well, open source is more than just code. It's, it's a lot more than that. It's like documentation, community, uh, even just research and development. I'm sure is, is like not just the things you do. Yeah. How, how long was this time frame of like you petitioning the community, so to speak to, you know, with what you wanted to do and how you wanted to do full time, like how long was that span of time? Uh, about six months. Not too bad. And you were full time with Thoughtbot during that time. Yeah. Let me just uh, do something unprecedented here on the change log. I'm going to read it, Sean, with your permission. I'm going to read Sean's LinkedIn bio. Can we do that? <laughs> I mean, he was he was reading a change oh, log. Oh man, to I us. haven't I haven't touched this in a long time. Yeah, I'm go assuming, for it. I remember I'm it was assuming, something. Go ahead. I was gonna say I'm assuming you haven't changed it for a while because it sounds like it's still in your petition phase. And I, I just Oh no, I had that there. I had that there just to get recruiters to stop spamming me. Okay. Oh boy. This is I I enjoyed this. I, I wanted to see I knew that Sean was at Shopify, but I want to see where he was previously. Thoughtbot makes a lot of sense because that's probably where you started doing the bike shit. Um and so I saw this on LinkedIn and I thought it was funny. He said, I'm currently only interested in opportunities that will allow me to focus primarily on open source contributions. The best way I can contribute to the community is with my work on Active Record. That includes if that includes your company. If you agree, drop me a line. My dream this work gets good. My dream stack is the one where recruiters leave me the hell alone. Please read the previous paragraph. If you think that, quote, focusing on open source contributions and quote, working at a company that uses open source are the same, then go away. So uh, it's interesting there because you're very clearly stating that at that time and probably to this day that you were interested and you were set on opportunities that allow you to do open source contributions full-time or primarily is what you said, which is probably more fair than full-time. Yeah. And then the, uh, of course the, the call to get recruiters to leave you alone is hilarious because I've been on LinkedIn for many years and the only people who've ever contacted me on LinkedIn is recruiters. Yep. I had a, a legitimate request. Um, Ever. So that, that was kind of funny and, and perhaps written back when you were ready to go from a consultant at ThoughtBot to uh, maybe on the path that you're down today. So tell us at Shopify, you got the, you got the job. Uh, you're, can you tell us like what your p- 
official position is, and you said it's more than just doing open source stuff. What all is involved in your role at Shopify? Well, my official position is 10x Hacker Ninja Guru. Oh, good. And if you're wondering what that means, it means that I once thought it'd be funny to see what happened if I put that on a government form related to my work permit. And it turns out what happens is that I cannot legally work in Canada with any job title other than 10x Hacker Ninja Guru. Oh, my gosh. Um, (laughs) That is so true. Oh, wow. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, my job... So one of the just the things that because right now I'm the only person who re, who focuses on Rails as their as their full time job, uh, and one of the biggest challenges that we face as a project is just issues and pull requests come in at a greater volume than we can generally process them. Uh, so I try to keep at the very least kind of one of the baseline things I do as part of my job is day to day or I guess really week to week. Open issue count doesn't go up, and open pull request count does not go up. So a very, probably the majority of my day is just doing issue triage more than anything else um, and, and, and reviewing pull requests and merging or closing them. Does it feel like you're making significant pro? I mean, when you say that the majority of your time is issue triage and um, when I think about different ways that people work on open source and in the ways that comp- I think companies should uh, invest in open source, I think the way that Shopify is going about it is necessary in terms mm-hmm. of, of pushing a thing forward because certain projects, certain tasks and needs are so intellectually or uh, not stimulating, but uh, stressful or require, they require so much thought that you couldn't possibly one week, um, one day a week or one week a month or two hours at the end of your day make significant process. Like for instance, on a rewrite of active record or a portion of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think we need people who are thinking about these things all the time because that's how you move software forward is you have to have the entire system in your head. And I like to think, Hey, at least Sean Griffin has active record in his head and is moving it forward. And then when I hear you say most of my time, I'm triaging issues and hoping they don't, I'm not working. <laughs> it's not that I'm working them down. It's that I just don't want them to get any bigger. And I wonder, wow, is are we moving forward or are we just maintaining the status quo? I mean, a little bit of both. I th- so I think that moving forward also has a different meaning for active record today than it used to. Mm. Um, you know, if you guys go to a RubyConf uh, or RailsConf, unless the tone is very different than it was a few years ago, uh, there'll be a lot of people like, oh my gosh, is, is Rails dying? Is Ruby dying? I don't really, I don't think, I, I think the notion of that in general is just sort of silly, but uh, I think a lot, a lot of where that comes from is a misinterpretation of the signals that come from just we uh, as a community are no longer at the point where we're going to be hip and, and uh, breaking new ground. Ultimately, mm-hmm. uh, Rails has shifted to a mature, stable framework. So to me, um, it's actually, it's interesting because I've, I've been finding it uh, harder and harder as time goes on to convince people why they should uh, upgrade to new Rails versions because we just don't have as many like killer features as we used to. Uh, but there is a lot of work that goes into each release, and I think a lot of the things that people are missing um, at Shopify, I, I end up pairing with some people quite a bit on uh, trickier uh, test failures that they run into as part of up- upgrading Rails versions. And uh, one of the ones that I've seen a lot recently uh, was I changed how, uh, how Dirty behaves in after-save callbacks in, uh, in Active Record. So basically, if you ask if an attribute has changed inside of an after-save callback in 5.2, that's going to behave the same as if you had that code 
rather than in a callback if you actually just put that code directly after the call to save. So it behaves as if it was after save. Mm. Uh, in 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 five one and earlier, uh, the way it works is we um, we do the persistence, we run the after save callbacks, and then we clear the dirty flags. And so five point two, the way that's going to work is we uh, do the persistence, then we clear the dirty the dirty flags, and then we uh, run the callbacks. Uh, and so there's a bunch of new methods so that uh, that are also more clear on what you are tr- what question you're trying to ask. So the new methods are all named. Uh, do you want to know if there is a change that has yet to be saved, or do you mm. want to know if there is a change that was just persisted? That's nice. And all of the places that that uh, I've run into in Shopify that I've inadvertently broken things are places where. Uh, there's a bunch of code that that is like in an after save callback mutating something and then expecting changed attributes to include both the things that were just saved and the thing that has yet to be saved, uh, and that actually just doesn't work in in five one. Uh, it'll only that'll that change would only be reflected in the do we have an unsaved change method. Um, anyway, so every time though I've gone in with somebody to look at how to fix this test failure, ultimately we've realized that the code was really, really funky to work around this quirkiness. And once we, once we fixed the uh, test failure, we actually were able to just delete a bunch of this hacky code that was working around a quirk and active record. And I think that's a thing that a lot of people don't realize going from version to version is, for me, a successful Rails version is when you can upgrade and delete a bunch of your hacks. Mm-hmm. So that's, um, that's definitely progress. It's... Um especially when you talk about you moving from a state of, uh, you know, kind of uh, from franticness or from uh, lack of clarity or conciseness to a, a state of like a good thought through API. And when you have that many people using different versions, you know, just moving a thing from step one to step 1.5 perhaps requires a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Um such as you say, clarifying those specific, even just the method names in five one versus previously, and so it a lot of work goes into it. On the outside, when you're looking at the new feature, you know it has less of the less of the wow factor, less of the big wins that we were getting. Yeah. You know, maybe perhaps in the first ten years when there was obviously things missing and uh, huge gains to be made. Yeah, certainly. I think uh, probably active storage is going to be is the thing that was most obviously that, that, that we've added since Rails 5 is the first time we've had something that I think everybody would agree was just a thing that almost every application needs and was obviously missing from Rails. Oh yeah, tell us about Active Storage. This is the cloud storage uh, adapter type stuff? Yeah, it, it serves a similar purpose to, uh, to refile or um, uh, why am I spacing on the, other, the name of the other one? That's really popular. Um, I'm still using Paperclip. Does that make me old school? Uh, it does, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Carrier Wave is the other one I was thinking of. Carrier yeah, paperclip. Wave, yep. Paperclip is a thing that definitely, like, it used to be Carrier Wave and Paperclip, but I right. don't think anybody's really using Paperclip anymore. Well, you found him. Um, <laughs> you know, on that note, though, to, to pull, maybe this is a wrench to some degree in the conversation, but you said, and maybe it's even something you can't speak about, but you mentioned how you had, you left ThoughtBot because management didn't, a line which I'm not going to assume exactly what you said, but it was something about you know your your desire to do this full time. But then, like Jared, you use Paperclip. That's a Thoughtbot project, right? Right. And there's so much open source out there around Rails that's almost default for many Rails developers. That's from Thoughtbot. So you would assume almost that 
ThoughtBot and management of ThoughtBot would see eye to eye with your future, Sean, like what you were trying to do. And that's in hindsight, seeing this and like this conversation just reminded me how prolific ThoughtBot is to Rails and open source. And I don't know. I just I, I kind of have a question mark on that. I mean, I don't want to I don't want to undersell what like their dedication to open source. Right, at all. Of course. Uh, yeah. But there's a big difference between a developer who is billing uh, versus a developer and works on open source one day a week because uh, ThoughtBot just does not bill on Fridays. Mm. Um, so there's a big difference between that and somebody who is not is, is not billing at all. And you need to be somebody that was doing this consistently day to day full time. Yeah. And that just wasn't possible. And well, yeah, exactly. I think so. So it's a big question of just I don't want I don't want to be working somewhere because it's charity. Um, I think that for the right company, I very much do uh, earn my paycheck and bring and bring uh, sufficient value to the company to justify my job's existence. So I say like our goals didn't align. I mean that it was it just was not a situation there where I was going to be able to uh, justify my paycheck there. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Sorry, um, I should have asked that because I was like, no, it's, you know, it's fine. Hearing paperclip here in this conversation reminded me of that. You know, they do such great work, and that's why I just had that question mark. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we were it was probably a couple of years ago now, Adam. We were on the Giant Robots podcast, yeah. And, that, and back when Ben was hosting it, and I even said to him that day that like. My career has very much been just following the ThoughtBot and yeah. what they do mm-hmm. and using their open source tools. And even today, like our new stuff is not on Ruby and Rails. Our, our CMS is on uh, Elixir and Phoenix. And yet we're still using some ThoughtBot libraries that happen to be Elixir based. So, wow. uh, you know, couldn't couldn't speak more highly of the, Absolutely. Of the open source stuff that they've done over, through the years. Absolutely. So, yeah. This episode is brought to you by GoCD. GoCD is an open source continuous delivery server built by ThoughtWorks. It provides continuous delivery out of the box with its built-in pipelines, advanced traceability, and value stream visualization. With GoCD, you can easily model, orchestrate, and visualize complex workflows from end to end. It supports modern infrastructure with elastic on-demand agents and cloud deployments. And their plugin ecosystem ensures GoCD will work well in your unique environment. To learn more about GoCD, visit gocd.org slash changelog. It's open source and free to use. And there's also professional support and enterprise add-ons available from ThoughtWorks. Once again, gocd.org slash changelog. storage now because i've only read read it in brief but give us i think this is probably a big deal um, in terms of like this is a flagship type of feature tell us a little bit more about it when it's coming that kind of stuff uh so it's coming to rails 5.2 which uh as far as i know we haven't actually announced a date yet um but it's currently on rails master and it's it's like like i was saying it serves a similar purpose to carrier wave and uh 
refile. And I'm honestly not intimately familiar enough with either of those libraries or active storage to tell you specifically how it how it differs, other than generally, as with most things when they come into Rails, uh, API that kind of better suits what we see as the Rails way. Uh, I think the one thing that it does much more upfront than any other solutions thus far is it has a big focus on making um, direct upload for service like S3 much uh, easier and more integrated, mm -hmm. which is a big deal if you are expecting large file uploads and you're hosting on something like Heroku, where if, it ha if your user takes more than 30 seconds to upload that file, uh, Time's out. you're screwed. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, or actually, if... The time, combined time for them to upload to your server and also for you to upload S, uh, to S3 or otherwise transmit to your database or wherever else you're going to store it because you can't, you can't store it on the file system of the server. Right. The um, second part of that transaction is usually pretty fast because Heroku is on you know, AWS infrastructure. So as long as yeah. you're on AWS also, it's, it's fast. But yeah, yes. well, point taken. Anyway, direct upload is a thing that you end up needing. And yep. uh, it's a thing I've used. To, I used a gem for it in the past, actually, uh, with Paperclip. I think um, that that worked fine. But now it's just built. It's built in out of the box. Um, yeah, it has. It has. An, just looking at from the maintenance point of view, it has an interesting structure. Just for um, uh, all the files themselves actually do live on a single table, which is I don't know if I, I've never looked at refile. I know Carrier Wave, as far as I know, doesn't structure things that way. I, I remember. I know Paperclip did it as columns on your table of the model it was attaching itself to. Um, so that's kind of interesting in that you can, you can always just add attachments to a model without, uh, without needing a database migration. But um, mm. like I said, I, I, I really can't speak to specifically how it differs from the other libraries out there too much. Mm. Well, one last topic on the, on the Rails and full-time aspect before I move on to talking about uh, your new you know, Shiny, which is Diesel. Mm -hmm. um, I was recently on your guys' show uh, on the Bike Shed. If you all don't listen to Sean and Derek Pryor on the Bike Shed podcast, check that out. We'll link up that episode in the show notes where we talk about funding, sustainability, so on and so forth, platforms. Um, if you're not sick of us talking about that, you know, go listen to that episode. If you are sick of it, well, bear with us a little bit because we got to get this figured out. But one of the things I said on that episode was that I would love for there to be more Sean Griffins out there and more Shopify specifically. Um, Shopify is a company that uh, I think because of its leadership and because of its roots in programming and Rails, uh, I think gets it better than most in terms of the value of having a full-time staffer working on the infrastructure that they rely upon. Um, but first of all, do you think there's a future for more people in roles like yours in corporate, I was going to say corporate America, but corporate world? And then secondly, if so, how do we go about, like, I don't know, getting more, getting more Sean Griffins out there? Oh, boy, that's a loaded question. Um, yes, I think there's room for more people with similar roles. I think that for it to be successful, it, it does need to be a job that is worth having regardless of the, the, the PR aspect of it. Um, so it needs to be structured in such a way that brings value to the company. Uh, I think there's a couple of things that are always going to exist that, that bring value for having a full-timer. Uh, number one is I, I sort of try to avoid specifically doing something in Rails because Shopify needs it. That said, I tend to fix the problems that I'm most exposed to, and I'm exposed to Shopify's problems more than other people's problems, so mm -hmm. things tend to get priority that way. 
Um, and certainly when I do just notice something that regardless of whether of Shopify or not, that just when I'm pairing with somebody like, oh, that's bad, we should fix that. There's a certain uh, there's a certain benefit to just when you notice something during your during during that sort of work, being able to just go and commit it. Um, yeah. And then the, and then the other one is uh, just having having the, the resource available of a person who can answer questions that that not many other people can and can uh, generally act as sort of a, a, a multiplier on the rest of the team. So you, you act as a liaison essentially to answering questions in and around Rails to Shopify and the developers there. Yeah. And sometimes it's, it's you know, uh, more beginner questions that, that other people could have answered, and that's fine. Uh, there's also, you know, benefits to just be having a flexible enough schedule to be able to spend as much time as people need answering questions. Uh, but every now and again, there will be a time where I'll be helping somebody debug something and we'll spend two or three hours on it. We'll figure it out. And it'll be the sort of thing where they, it would have taken them a day or two otherwise. And those are the days that I feel really good about, about, uh, about my job. So that's mm-hmm. the part that feels good about giving value back to the company. That's, you know, obviously employing you, yeah. not just the success you want to have as being full-time open source on rails. Those are kind of two different things to some degree. Yeah. I, I mean, cause it sounds like you, you know, you wanted to be employed somewhere to be full-time doing what you want to do, but also give the value back. So it seems like it's two headed in some capacity. Right. Like I said, full-time open source does not mean 100% of my time is right. spent on open source. It's, it's just, it's just a nice way to bundle up the, and the focus of my job is open source. Um, I think one of the benefits that just comes from it is if somebody does just need somebody to pair with them on a hard problem, whether it's Rails related or not, I tend to be less bound to deadlines because mm. I don't work on the product. So I'm, I'm much more available than most people are for whatever impromptu, for answering questions, mm. for pairing with somebody on whatever, uh, doing code review, um, Shopify could probably use a few dozen people like that at the at yeah. the num- with the number of developers we have, but there's certainly a lot of value in in just having people who are available, to, senior developers who are available just to help in general. Uh, who who the answer is never going to be. I would love to, but I really can't because I have to finish this feature. Mm. Yeah, I've been trying to think of a metaphor that works well when discussing maybe the roles of developers inside of a company. One that got gets to a scale where it's beyond, you know, three people or a small team uh, where there's multiple teams of developers doing different things. And what's what makes sense in terms of like business language that people can use with regards to roles like yours? And I think one metaphor I've been thinking about is in terms of, uh, you know, kind of back office, front office type of employees. I'm not sure, you know, how, how business centered y'all are, but uh, with regard to like the people who are out, you know, sales marketing, H, well, HRB back office, certain f- customer facing uh, jobs versus accounting controllers, um, those types of roles where the people up front are the ones quote unquote making the money, right? And the people in the back are the ones quote unquote saving the money or managing the money. And with developers, I think at a certain point when so much of your infrastructure is outside of your control, in the case of uh, software as a service, and you get to a certain size and you have hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lines of code that are maintained by people that don't work for you. I think having kind of your front office developers, these are the people who are working on new features, new products, so on and so forth. 
And then having kind of a set of infrastructure people, which is really nice. Like you said, Sean, when, you know, when somebody does need help or needs a pair, you're generally more available because you don't have that deadline. Yeah. And I wonder if that's a metaphor that resonates with you guys or if I'm just barking up the wrong tree. No, I mean, I think it makes a lot of sense. Uh, to a certain extent, the, the reason I've, I've, I've tried to structure this position the way, the way that it is for me is just because, like, at the end of the day, if I'm working on the product, I'm not going to be that much more effective at building a Rails app than any other developer is. Because the, major, the majority of building a Rails app is boring, uh, which is a good thing. <laughs> but um, I mean, boring, like, I don't want to be doing it, but boring like, in, that, in that just about any developer is going to be able to do an equally good job and take about the same amount of time. Um, and I do think that there is a, a unique knowledge set that comes with just maintaining the framework that, can be, that I want to be able to apply as much as I can. If you had to, what would be a way to template the kind of role you have to others? Like if we can copy and paste what you do there like is there a job description how do you outline the type of role i mean obviously you covered the things you just did here now how do you take that to linkedin github obviously github does probably a lot but you know stripe does a lot how do you take that to the non-deep tech companies and say here's how you embed somebody like jared said you have so much so much leaning on lines of code you don't even control that aren't employed by you how do you copy and paste what you do and apply it elsewhere so that's the thing is I don't know that that's the way to grow it. Uh, I, I think that for the people who want to do it full, full time, it is going to be a very unique job uh, dependent on both the, per the person doing it and what they want out of the role and also what makes sense for the company that, that's hiring them. Uh, I think really the way that we grow more people in open source is we do just have more people who aren't necessarily full time on it but uh, are spending some portion of their time. Like th there, So there are... Issue triage, for example, is the sort of thing that can much generally much more easily be done on a day-a-week scale. Smaller features are something that can be done on a week-a-month scale. Um, something that Shopify has been doing recently, which I think is really cool, is we have uh, people within the company submit proposals to the Rails team of stuff that they would like to work on, and then we pick, we pick some people and they come join the Rails team for a quarter. Uh, and just and just do open source full time for 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 one quarter. It's not you know everybody in the company does it that way. It's it's just whoever uh, whoever gets picked. But um, ultimately, you know that is the sort of thing people talk about. Uh, twenty percent time, and I would wager twenty five percent time is not not a huge jump after that. I think if more companies offered twenty to twenty five percent time for open source and also gave people the flexibility to to spend that time in whatever chunks make sense for the thing that they're trying to accomplish. So if they're, if they're just wanting to get their feet wet in open source, Fridays makes a lot of sense. If they're maintaining a project a week, a month might make more sense. And if they really want to dig into to building a big feature, there are, there are things that you just can't do that take more than a week that you just cannot effectively do unless you're able to really go heads down, spend your time thinking, spend full time thinking about it. Uh, and so be, allowing people even to go a quarter a year. Uh, I think if more companies offered that sort of thing, that would be ha the, the better way to grow it than more positions like mine. Hmm. Okay, one last question on this, and then we'll cut ourselves off, because honestly, I think Adam and I could prod Probably. you about this particular thing all afternoon. Yeah. 
But uh, last thing I'll say is, you know, I joke, I said that you were quote unquote living the dream. You jokingly said, you know, kind of more like living the nightmare. But in all honesty, are you happy with what you've achieved in terms of your role and the ability to do it? Is it, does it play out uh, overall good or overall bad? Another loaded question. Come on. No, that's not loaded. Um, That's fair. (laughs) <laughs> no, I mean, uh, I would, I, I, I'm very satisfied with how things have turned out, okay. and I think I'm happier doing what I am right now than I would be doing something else. Well, that's the safest way to answer that. Good answer. That's my, that's my very political way of saying no, <laughs> but I'm going to be more miserable doing anything else. Right. Um, no, I mean, so that was the other half of kind of why I went into doing this full time was I just. I found myself getting less and less able to motivate, uh, get motivated by business problems, hmm. which would be a whole rabbit hole. So we don't have to go into that, but that was discussed recently on go time. We mentioned that in the pre-call jokingly, Hey, it's go time, but we have a show called go time. And it was discussed on their recent show. I, I, uh, I think it might've been chase Adams where, or somebody else. I, I can't recall the person, but if we do, I'll link it up in the show notes that they were just saying that they, they, uh, they enjoyed building, building developer tools more, serving the developer. The developer was their customer rather than the product that the company was delivering. You know? So like, they felt comfortable in that arena much more than they did, as you had said, which was like dealing with business problems. Yeah. Well, then that's why open source as a full-time job can kind of suck because how many developers give every single one of their customers a direct hotline to them? So, Sean, you write... A Ruby ORM as your day job, and for some reason you decided to build a Rust ORM as what I'll just call your side gig. Tell yeah. us about Diesel and why you decided to uh, dive into the world of ORMs once again, this time in Rust. So, just preface one thing because I've, I've been noticing like a lot of people tune out Diesel immediately with that label. So I'd like to preface it with Diesel is very much more of a query builder first and an ORM second. That's funny because in our in our notes, I actually have a specific question: Is it really an ORM, and do we care to bike shed the acronym for a while? Because we can, and I'm sure people do. It is an ORM in that okay. it does provide some functionality to map rows in your database table to objects in your system. Okay, which is but more about the query builder. Yes, but it's more about it's more uh, about the query builder than anything else because I think that's the more interesting part. Why do people? Uh, Tune out when they hear ORM, do you think? Oh, I think that when people hear ORM, they think they, get, they, get, they have like PTSD flashbacks to the most painful parts of Active Record or Hibernate <laughs> or uh, Django ORM. And they think about callbacks and overcoupling business logic to persistence logic and, and all that good stuff. Mm. Fair um, enough. Anyway, uh, so you had asked what made me want to jump back into it. Uh, mm-hmm. So Rust was a language that had, I, I, I want to jump into it because Rust, basically. And uh, Rust was a language that I was sort of, before I ever actually tried writing a line of it, was aware of and interested in, um, just because I was very into various functional programming languages, uh, mostly Scala and Haskell. And um, I found Rust interesting because... Uh, Everybody is trying to solve the problem of shared mutable state. And most functional languages are, are going about that by removing mutability. And I found mm-hmm. Rust, if nothing else, novel because it went about fixing it by removing sharing. Hmm. Um, 
And so it was it, it piqued my interest, if for no other reason than uh, because it was doing something novel. So um, I was on uh, I had inadvertently towards the end of my time at ThoughtBot, uh, I had inadvertently become the 3D rendering engine guy. Um, okay. So I was on a client that? project. Um, basically, I wrote a 3D rendering engine. It turns out when you do one of those, there's a lot of 3D rendering engine contracts that come out of the weeds. Huh. Mm. Um, and why I ended up having to write one was a, is a story that'll take me 10 minutes to tell. But basically, out of necessity, I ended up having to write one for a different project at sort of the, the beginnings of WebGL being supported by browsers, and then the, con- the projects kept coming. Anyway, so we were on this project that was uh, C++, and... It was for mobile, uh, and because of the polycount requirements, we couldn't uh, take the overhead of a, of a framework like Unity. So it was a kind of raw OpenGL uh, engine. And Rust had just gone 1.0 at this point in time, and so uh, for fun, on nights and weekends, uh, I sort of ported it to Rust just to get a feel for the language. And... Um, Got sold on it, if nothing else, as a replacement for C++ because I had a seg fault that I was having a, a bear of a time tracking down. And this was like me just one-to-one as close as I could porting the C++ code over. And this was not modern C++. This was a guy with a decent understanding of C trying to write C++. So, uh, you know, not using templates in any, in any meaningful way. Certainly not using smart pointers the way I should have been. Um, so it was, pretty e- it was generally pretty easy to kind of directly port to Rust, but then I finally figured out where the seg fault was coming from because it wouldn't compile. Mm-hmm. And so I never shipped the Rust port, but just the act of porting it fixed a bug in my code. So I sold on it from like a replacement for C++ immediately there, but uh, I don't generally write C++ because I'm very bad at it. Uh, so that wasn't terribly interesting. But I did realize how amazing its type system was as, as part of that project. And so Rust type system is, is basically, to a certain extent, it is what if you took Haskell's type system, removed higher kinded types, but then in exchange gave uh, certain other types of uh, genericism in, in type class instances, and you end up with a Rust type system. And so that was really cool. And so then I, I started wondering, hmm, I wonder if Rust could work as a high-level language. So Diesel was me trying to answer that question originally. That's an interesting concept. Well, first of all, two, maybe you should write a book because uh, two, <laughs> ways, two ways that you described Rust to me just now were a bit more tangible. And we've had shows on Rust. Uh, Steve Klabnix taught, taught us about Rust. You hit a cat, and it never sticks very that, well with me. That was the episode that actually originally got me interested in Rust. Oh, very cool. So it's the circle of life. Wow. <laughs> Nothing we love uh, hearing more than that. That's so awesome. That's right. So um, random aside on Haskell. Uh, so RustConf was this, was, was this weekend. And uh, I was there giving a talk. And um, the talk was about, about Rust type system. Uh, it was called type, tri- type System Tricks for the Real World. Uh, the actual goal of the talk was um, to explain the concept of monomorphization in a way that was accessible to people who were new to both programming and new to Rust. Uh, I'm not going to recap the whole talk. It'll, it prob- I don't know how long editing is, so it may not even be online when this goes up. If it's up, there'll be a link in the show notes, but uh, if not, it'll be, the video of it will be up in a, in a few weeks. But um, there's, this, there's this case of uh, infinitely sized types 
That's kind of an error that you really only run into if you're trying to implement a singly linked list in Rust, where the naive way you write it is you have a struct or, or an enuma subtype where one of the fields is the same type. And in a language like Haskell, that's sort of implicitly behind a pointer. Everything's heap allocated, so the size is, is known, and that's fine. And that's how you solve the problem in Rust as well. Uh, but in Rust, if you kind of naively just write a, a struct where one of the fields is the same type as the struct itself, then that has an infinite size because the size of a struct is the sum of the size of all of its fields. And so the example that everybody uses for this is singly linked lists because that's really the only time you ever practically run into this. Uh, but in every example I've ever seen, you, you, you always have it be like it's a list of bytes specifically because you don't want to deal with generics mm. uh, explaining this problem. And I've always kind of hated that because number one, not everybody knows or cares what a singly linked list is. And number two, nobody's ever going to be implementing a list of bytes. And I had this revelation when I was working on this talk. If I make, if I make it uh, specifically a list of type car, I can call it list string. And number one, it becomes more tangible to people who don't know what singly linked lists are. And number mm. two, I get to make fun of Haskell a lot during this talk. <laughs> Well, and there were like well three played. people who there were like three people in the audience who did Haskell as their full time job, and they and they thought it was really funny. That's when you're really talking to a niche. First, you're at, you're at a Rust Conf, and at Rust Conf, you get three people in an audience that understand your joke. Yeah. Well, I mean, no, I, I, well, so funny other story, which I'll, I'll tell in just a second. But no, I mean, I I think a lot of people got the joke because like just a, a, representing string as a singly linked list of characters is kind of a bad idea in general. And most right. people seem to just at the very least laugh. Uh, but there were the, the three people just because I think everybody who does Haskell will agree that the, that choice has caused so much pain to the Haskell community. Oh, uh, I see. Yeah. And so they, they laughed much more because of that. Um, <laughs> so it wasn't the, the three people got it. The three people were hit by it, basically. Yeah. Yeah. My very first conference talk I ever gave, uh, my first slide was a joke that was really only funny if you knew Haskell. And it was at a Ruby conference, and I way overestimated the number of people in Ruby who know Haskell. Uh, Jessica Kerr found it very funny. I know that because she was the only person in the entire room who laughed. You should put that on a t-shirt or something. Jessica Kerr thinks <laughs> I'm funny, you know? She thought that one joke was funny, if nothing else. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by TopTow. TopTow is the best place to work as a freelancer or hire the top 3% of freelance talent out there for developers, designers, and finance experts. In this segment, I talk with Josh Chapman, a freelance finance consultant at TopTow, about the work he does and how TopTow helps him legitimize being a freelancer. Take a listen. 
Yeah, in my arena within TopTal, I specialize in everything from market research to business plan creation to pitch decks to financial modeling, valuation. And then that leads very naturally into fundraising strategy, capital raising strategy, investor outreach, closing a deal, deal negotiation, how to value the company, how to negotiate that. And all those skill sets that I have continued to hone over on the TopTal side are ones that I actually deploy every single day in my own company. Freelancing can sometimes be seen as not legitimate or subpar work. Now, I would argue that when you work with a company like TopTal, they put so much vetting into not only the companies that you work with, but also the talent that you work with, which I'm on the talent side, that it adds a level of legitimacy that isn't seen across other platforms. And that for me, as the talent side, is incredibly fruitful and awesome to be a part of, right? I enjoy the clients. I enjoy the other talent that I get to talk to. I enjoy the the TopTal team, and that creates an overall positive experience, not only for, for TopTal, but for me as the talent and for the client as the company on the other side. And that is really not seen or is the experience across other platforms in the freelance market. So if you're looking to freelance or you're looking to gain access to a network of top industry experts in development design or finance, head to TopTal.com, that's T-O-P-T-A-L.com and tell them Adam from the Changelog sent you. For those wanting a more personal introduction, email me, adam at changelog.com. You had mentioned that Diesel was an attempt to, uh, I'm paraphrasing your words now, was basically present rust as a higher level language or not a it was to figure out if it could even be that yes and i think um that and i think maybe some other efforts around web frameworks and such things are starting to cast rust more in a general purpose light whereas when it was first presented to the community and it's been around for a little while now but we've always you know said this is a systems language sure um and I remember you saying on the bike shed at some point that you think that has perhaps done a disservice to the language. I'm just curious if you could expand on that. Yeah, so I think the problem with, with just referring to it as a systems language is uh, the things that systems languages can do and the things that Ruby can do. This isn't like a Venn diagram where, you know, or even a, it's not like two disjoint sets, right? So a systems language, being a systems language does not prevent the language from doing anything that a high-level language does. It's just that historically, languages that were able to do the sort of things that systems languages are able to do, which is generally just be able to control memory allocation, have been painful to use for, for higher-level tasks. Uh, C++ developers may disagree with me here, uh, but that's fine. But like Go, for example, it was originally presented to the world as a systems programming language. Yes. And they eventually reframed it as a general purpose programming language because ultimately, even though technically general purpose is less general, like if you're, if you're going to classify things, general purpose is less general purpose than systems uh, <laughs> because the, the, the term general purpose programming, Ruby is a general purpose programming language. Right. Yeah. Nobody is going to claim that you can write an operating system in Ruby. I mean, you can, it just won't be a very good one uh, or a very fast one at least. That's one of the reasons I appreciated how Swift was presented to the world because it was very clearly from the start. It's supposed to be 
everything from a you know single line script that you execute uh, just in time to build an operating system with it. And so it had this huge ambition, but they clearly stated it from the very beginning, at least from the release date. Whereas yeah. with Go and Rust, they've kind of been like trying to fig- not really figure out what it is, but realize that maybe perhaps it's been cast in a light that people tend to put it into a corner and say, oh, you're just for that. And so they don't think of it as a tool they can grab. I think that the Rust team overestimated Rust's appeal to C++ developers and underestimated its appeal to the broader audience. It's interesting because you're coming to it from a, uh, as a Rubyist who had, you know, C++ you know, some skills, but you liked it because I of do not have C plus plus skills. Let's be clear. Well, I said I said some skills because you had this. You were you know you were building a thing with C plus plus. So there's some yeah. skills right there. No, but I mean I think that's telling, right? That the only reason I decided to to actually take a look at it was was as a replacement for C plus plus. Um, when like I was aware of it before that, I, I just never actually I never realized what what it could do. Outside of, oh yeah, it's like it, you would use it for everything you would use C for. Right. So you set out to see if it was good at such things as being an ORM, and so you started building diesel, and that was a while ago. Tell us where you got with that, what diesel, you know, where diesel's at in its life, and um, just open up that a little bit for us. Yeah. So uh, I shipped diesel Thanksgiving Day 2015 because I was trying to avoid family. Mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> Family's listening. Oh, boy. I, I hope not. Uh, I doubt <laughs> it. <laughs> um, so, Diesel's coming up on its second birthday. Uh, right now, I guess where it's at in its lifespan is we are looking to ship 1.0. And right now, our target date is November 23rd, which will be Diesel's second birthday. That, by no means, is going to be, like, Diesel's feature complete. But it is a commitment to stability of the API. And... Um, Basically, all of the features that I expect to be able to implement in the near future, and by the near future, I, I would call that like within two to three years, that I also expect to ha- require breaking changes are, are done. So like the features that have been on the 1.0 milestone are not the sort of things that are like super pressing compared to some of the other things, but are uh, the things I expect to have require breaking changes. Um, so like... One of those is uh, refact. Actually, most—I mean, most of the stuff is actually gone now. Uh, but like refactoring our error types to be a slightly better structure. It's one of those things that, like, that's been a ra- that's actually been on the issue tracker since June. It's a it's a low priority thing. It's it's one of those like, yeah, there's just a few cha- tweaks we want to make here, but there's no pressing need for it. It's not like our current error handling API is is super bad. Um, but it's one of those that is going to be a breaking change. So we need to do it before 1.0 or, or commit to not doing it for, for a while. Ironically, as I've been going through this milestone, actually, I've been finding more and more things. I'm like, you know what? Actually, I think I can do this backwards compatibly, so I'm going to take this off the milestone. Hmm. You mentioned that this, you started this Thanksgiving 2015. Uh, that's when I released 0.1. Okay. I started on about six months before that. And you mentioned that you got into this as a uh, as a desire to learn more about Rust, right? So was this your learning thing for Rust, or is that not not where you started? No, no. Certainly, my learning thing for Rust, at least for like the very basics of it, was that was that three uh, D rendering project. Okay. Um, certainly, I learned a lot more about Rust as part of writing Diesel. Yeah. Um, but I, I definitely had a, a reasonable understanding of the language when I started the project. So. 
were you scratching an itch when you did it or what was why why is it even existing i mean it was very much so so it was it was it exists because there was not a good orm at the time i i was originally going to uh my original plan was actually to go full full on web framework which you know if i had infinite time would have happened um and an ORM was the, the first logical part of that. But it was very much like I just wanted to explore Rust as a high-level language. I didn't know when I started if Diesel was going to ever be an, a, a library that was good enough to ship. But I wanted to see if Rust could, could work as a high-level language. If it was a language I wanted to spend more time with. And so to me, high-level means web. And pretty much every web application out there needs to interact with a database. And I wanted a library that made it easier to interact with a database. So it wasn't so much to scratch an itch per se because I didn't have like an existing application in Rust that was missing a good database library. Uh, that said, good open source libraries are not built in a vacuum. So I very quickly realized that I was going to need an application. Uh, so for me, that application was crates.io, which was the uh, it, it's uh, Rust's version of RubyGems.org, which is a surprise. It does some surprisingly complex uh, interactions with the database. See, I, I would assume that that's relatively straightforward. Like you would think, but they're they're just they're doing some interesting things in the database that that we would that a lot of people would have otherwise done in their native language. Yeah. So, like for example, um, one of the things that Diesel supports as a result of crates.io is the ability for. Um, to use arbitrary user-defined SQL functions in the query builder. And that, that was because uh, crates.io has a function called canon crate name, which is just where they canonicalize uh, the name, replacing underscores and hyphens and, and changing the casing. Uh, and they just they do that in the database. <laughs> that was just one of those like, okay, so you know, we would have just you, you would have made sure that you always call dot down case and you know dot right. g sub in your scope. In Rails, I don't actually know that there's a huge benefit to doing it in the database because you also just have to remember to call this function. Uh, but it was that was how they were doing it, and so Diesel supports arbitrary SQL functions, and that turned out to be—I mean, number <laughs> one, just because it's a good, it, like it's a good thing to support. But it turned out to be a really um, good move because there's a a bunch of functions that have non-trivial signatures to write when you actually try and and figure out the type signatures of it, like like just uh, lower. Actually, I think we have lower in diesel. I'm trying to think, there was a really common one where, like, depending on the type that you pat, coalesce is probably a good one because coalesce has no meaningful type signature that you could write in 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 most languages. Certainly, uh, Rust does not have variadic length functions, so figuring out how to write coalesce would have been a pain. Yeah, but because we support arbitrary user defined SQL functions and it's really easy to do so, you just define coalesce with the actual signature you need for that one case where you're going to call it. And we were able to just punt mm. that issue entirely. Yeah, it saves a bunch of code. And yeah, it's, what, it, it's certainly, I mean, and saving code is a benefit for sure. It's one of those yeah. things like if I had a good idea in my head of how to reasonably write coalesce in a way that wasn't painful uh, for, yeah. for, for people to use, I would do it, but I don't. So that's okay because mm. you can still do coalesce and it's fine. Right, it saves you from coming up with a painful solution, right? Yeah. Whereas people can all just do it the way that they need to. So... I imagine it. Adam asked, like, why does it exist? And you said it wasn't really to scratch an itch, but it, uh, you know, you wanted to try out the novelty of Rust. You've already tried Rust. You wanted to provide a thing in the Rust ecosystem that didn't exist, which is one of the ways that languages get adopted. Is people, you know, have tools that can solve their problems, um, especially for, if you're trying to build web stuff and there's no 
web stuff or database stuff available, yeah. it's you know sometimes a non-starter for folks. Um, I was wondering if a lot of diesels, maybe not the genesis of it, but maybe the design of diesel and the feature set are a product of your experience working with Active Record and the history there, and how much of it is a, is a product of Rust's design. Like how much of it is because of where you've been with Active Record, and so the things that you've seen that you don't want to do, or the good ideas right. that you do want to do, and then how much of it falls out from Rust's properties as a as a platform. Yeah. Um, so it's a combination of both. So so I, I have joked that Diesel is my apology for Active Record, <laughs> um, <laughs> even though of course I didn't. You know I'm not responsible for a lot of Active Record's design. Um, I um, I do see the effects of uh, its design quite a bit. So certainly one of the big things I wanted to avoid are things that are common sources of issues on the Rails code base. And there's two kinds of issues that come in, right? It's either a person has an actual, there's an actual bug and there are features in Rails that are just more bug prone than others, generally because they're more complex. Or it's because a lot of people misunderstand a feature. And so we close those issues, but I still notice them you know, getting open. So I was very much not trying to write active record for Rust. Uh, it was very much, I wanted to build an ORM that was true to Rust. And so I spent a good bit of time thinking about what that meant. And to me, that means safety. So Rust is, you know, touts that it's a memory-safe language, but it's also a very type-safe language. So the defining vision behind Diesel was Diesel should disallow an incorrect SQL query at compile time. Now, what I thought that was going to be originally and what it turned out to be are two completely different things. I originally envisioned this being like you just had some fragments of SQL as strings and we provided an API to kind of stitch those together and then we connected to your database at compile time and asked the database like, hey, is this a valid query? Um, <laughs> what we ended up with does none of that. Uh, the smallest little inkling of that that came through is that we have an optional feature where you can, uh, we, we, have, we have a bunch of data structures that we generate that represent your database schema, and we can generate that for you at compile time if you give us a database URL. Um, that's the only part of that, that design that actually survived. Uh, because it was bad design or bad idea or there was a better way of doing it? Didn't need um, it? Just didn't need it. Yeah. Turned out that like Rust type system is flexible enough. I, I I can represent a SQL query in a way that is very close to one to one with the underlying SQL in pure Rust, and give more meaningful error messages that way. Uh, you know the the main reason you want a query builder to begin with is that SQL strings are not very composable. Yeah. Uh, and they're hard to reuse. So that's why. So like you'll notice that a lot of Diesel's APIs though will look very similar to to Rails. Uh huh. Like, for example, if you want to pass a select clause, it's going to be dot .select. Uh, instead of passing us some symbols, basically, if you're, if you're just passing a list of columns, it'll look exactly like it does in Rails. But there'll be an extra set of parentheses because you're passing us a tuple. Mm. And then you'll remove all of the colons because each column on your table is an actual type. Uh, and so you're passing us just those structs. Uh, but then the, the other big difference, though, is that then when you want to do some, when you want to select clause that's more complex than just a list of columns... Uh, you're going to just do whatever you want with the query builder because you were never passing a list, a list of columns. You were passing us a arbitrary SQL expression that is valid for the get and from clause. 
So if you want to, you know, call lower on one of those columns, you just lower and then that same column. But that's all still Rust code. Mm -hmm. uh, we just support a much, much wider range of uh, what is possible in SQL. Uh, we don't support everything that's possible in SQL. I don't think we ever will support everything that's possible in SQL, but I'd like to get to like 95% of um, at least ANSI. I, I, I definitely don't want Diesel to be chasing every backend specific feature till the end of time. That is something that third-party libraries can do. And from the get-go, I've tried to design this in a way that there is a, a solid foundation uh, of APIs for people to add additional plugins uh, crates.io does full text search stuff so sort of as my canary uh, I maintain a full text search crate for diesel uh, that's support for just the various operators and types that are required for Postgres full text search mm -hmm. so the, the point being um, I guess the goal was to have it be as productive as active record is but catch errors at compile time within reason there, there are certain things that we just don't catch uh, one of the biggest ones being like we don't know what your check constraints are Right. so certainly inserts are probably the least checked part of diesel and updates because we don't we don't know enough about your database schema to actually like fully verify uh, you know are all of the invariants represented in rust type system and i don't really care to because that's that's getting into the really really high cost low gain yeah. uh type of things that's heavy lifting to get that done and then the other things are like uh we we sort of assume that all for a given type in sql the equivalent type in Rust, all values can be mapped between the two, which is not always true. Uh, the two op examples that really come to mind are like uh, Postgres, even though it claims it accepts any UTF-8 string, uh, will not allow strings that contain null characters. And there actually is a type in Rust called C-string that very specifically represents a string that does not contain null characters, but we just take a normal Rust string because that was the, it, it was too painful to, to, to disallow that. And then like... Um, Chrono, the, the, the commonly used datetime library. Um, I don't remember what the mapping is, but basically one, I, I, if either Postgres supports dates that are earlier or Chrono uh, uh, accepts dates that are earlier, but then whichever one uh, isn't that allows dates that are later. So like there's a, a subset of dates that are accepted uh, between the two, but it's something like uh, anywhere from 20,000 BC to, to, to 23,000 AD. Mm. Uh, so not, not, not something I'm worried about. But anyway, so it's, we want to prevent uh, runtime errors within reason. Yeah. So then the, the other half of your question was uh, how much of it came from Rust versus how much of it came from uh, right. active Rails record. or Active Record. Um, and so there's a lot of things that are, are kind of lessons learned from Active Record. Uh, certainly, like, there's no semblance of dirty or validations or callbacks. Um, Things like timestamps are handled purely at the database. We provide uh, database-level helpers that you can call in your migrations. Um, you know, created at doesn't need anything other than a default in the database. And then updated at is handled by a trigger. And because I can never remember the syntax for, for uh, creating a trigger, there's a, there's a diesel manage updated at function, which takes the name, the name of your table as a string. Uh, in your migrations, is a SQL function. Um, that will uh, create the trigger and set up the trigger for you. Uh, hmm. And so as a result of that, that means all of our functions around inserts and updates use the returning keyword and just so that way we actually reflect what was stored in the database. Um, but then a, a, big, a big thing that was just sort of a learning from not just maintaining Rails, but also my time as a consultant, um, is that it's unidiomatic in Diesel to use the same type for reading from the database as you use for writing. Uh, you guys mentioned you do Elixir and Phoenix, so this will probably be familiar to you guys. Uh, 
So we have a separate struct that you'll that you'll implement a, a trait called tr change set for. Mm -hmm. uh, mostly just by putting derive change set on it, uh, or derive as change set on it. And the design of diesel is meant that your structs which implement queryable uh, are meant to be one-to-one -one with the queries that you're executing. And that may or may not be one-to-one -one with your database tables. And then your, your structs which implement uh, insertable or as change set, and oftentimes you will have one struct which implements both, those mm -hmm. are meant to be one-to-one -one with your API endpoints or web forms. Because in my experience, the, the needs of those two things tend to diverge over time, and they change for different reasons. Mm -hmm. so, so the design of diesel, it's possible to have those two on the same struct, but it's a little bit painful, and it's unidiomatic, and, and the, the design of diesel is meant to kind of gently nudge you to separate those early on uh, to make your life a little easier later on. That actually sounds pretty nice, coming from where I've been. Um, having that, those separations, I think definitely would grow better with an application than the way active record does it. Yeah. So what about the other way? Has it anything from diesel, any gleanings from diesel that have found their way back into the rails code base or perhaps will be? Oh yeah. I mean, all of, I mean, I, I, I can't actually like, there's only a few instances I can list of like explicit cases. You know, it's very hard for me to talk about all the places where just like, because I've made diesel, I'm better equipped to maintain rails. Mm -hmm. Um, there are definitely a few concrete cases. Uh, I'm eventually looking to get rid of active record relation. If I get rid of, I don't mean deprecate, I mean move to a gem and continue to maintain that gem because I don't want to do Rails 2, 3 to 3 all over again. But um, move it to a gem and start to explore alternate query builders because ultimately relation uses a full SQL query as its unit of composition. And I think that is the wrong level of abstraction for, for a query builder to operate at. And mm. I think that's most apparent in how long uh, relation or took us to add and why it was so tricky, which um, uh, there's a conference talk where I went into the details of it. I want, I, I, we don't need to recount all of that here. Uh, anyway, so, so diesel is very much kind of what I'm imagining an eventual future Rails query builder might look like. So there's that. Um, a slightly more concrete example uh, is um, I'm working on a new... Postgres driver for diesel right now. The current Postgres driver is built on libpq, which is the C library uh, for interacting with the Postgres wire protocol that is shipped with Postgres itself. It is also what the PG Ruby gem is built on top of. Mm -hmm. uh, and very specifically, um, so Postgres allows you to transmit values uh, as either binary representation or text representation. And we use uh, text representation always because the binary representation is generally undocumented and not considered to be stable, even though it is effectively stable, at least for the most common types. Uh, the, only, the only thing that is actually documented is that the binary representation of numeric types is uh, network Indian. Um, and everything else, you go look at the C source code. Uh, <laughs> Diesel right now always uses the binary representation, and there are certain data types that like I've just not added support yet for yet because I don't want to figure out their binary representation. Mm. Uh, on the flip side of that, the binary representation of the timestamp type in Postgres is a signed 64-bit integer representing the number of microseconds since January 1st, 2000, and a unsigned 32-bit integer representing the, uh, or I'm sorry, the number of seconds, and then an unsigned 32-bit integer representing the subsecond uh, portion of that, which is, uh, I believe microseconds but it's actually dependent on a compiler flag mm. um but it basically you can assume it's microseconds so 
time is the uh, or, or date time is the most expensive kind of core type supported by Rails in terms of typecasting. Because the difference and the difference in performance between turning those two numbers into a time into a Ruby time object versus doing arbitrary string parsing is enormous. Mm. So uh, the actual main driver for me doing this for for Diesel is uh, adding async I/O, which which Rails would not be able to take advantage of. But then one of the other drivers is libpq allows you at the um, per query level to say I would like all of the results back as binary versus text. But uh, the wire protocol itself actually allows you to specify per column whether you would like the, the results back as binary or text. So when I finish this driver for diesel, I'm then going to pull that out and write a Ruby wrapper for that and ship that as an optional new Postgres adapter for Rails, which may or may not become the default, uh, depending on how well shipping a Rust dependency of Rails ends up going. And then the final most concrete way that diesel's influenced Rails, uh, about three weeks ago, I made a change to Rails uh, where I uh, changed how we handle bind parameters and fixed a bazillion long-standing issues that were like mostly gone in 5.0, but kind of still hung around and now are completely impossible. Uh, and it was it was a change to ARL and basically just how we manage bind parameters with our AST. And I don't, since we're running short on time, I won't get into the technical details. But the way I implemented it was I took some code from Diesel and I pasted that into ARL. Oh, and yeah. I converted that to Ruby syntax and then just followed the test failures until until everything was green. The old copy-paste. And now that I've realized I can do that, and it works. Legit strategy. That's, that's just my strategy now. <laughs> that's your first step on all bugs. Just copy some stuff out of Diesel, paste it in. Yeah, first implement it in Diesel, and then copy-paste it into Rails. That's hilarious. All right, hey, so sorry, that's probably a little more wordy than you were looking for. No, but. that it, those are great concrete examples, and I just love seeing, you know, basically the fruits of labor in one place get applied across, it, especially in a project like Rails, which so many people benefit from uh, your work there. So that is good stuff. Yeah. Well, we're, we're running real short here. Two really quick questions, and we'll call okay. it a day. Uh, the first one is uh, Diesel Hits 1.0. Are you plan ever planning on picking up the full web framework? In Rust and no, building that. I had a baby. I can't do that. I have. I don't have time for that anymore. You have a baby. Ruby. Ruby takes up all my time now. My baby's Ruby. My named Ruby, by the way. Your baby is named Ruby. Yes, it's a great name. Um, I'm actually. I'm, so I'm not sure if this is going to be a thing or not. But if I can just plug this, and then maybe we'll cut it if it doesn't end up happening. Also, if you're interested, I have these really cute baby Ruby stickers, which are for sale on Dev Swag, and there's a link in the show notes if you want to support my development of Rails and Diesel. There you go. Get out there and support Sean. Buy a baby Ruby sticker or 10 <laughs> if that's a thing. All right, last question. You're, you're hyp- hypothetically, you're stranded on a desert island. You only get one programming language that begins with RU. Um, <laughs> which programming language do you pick and why? Um, oh, well, I'm trying to think of a third programming language that begins <laughs> with RU to give, my, to give a facetious answer. Yeah, if I would have said R, you could have just said R, then I, I would have been. Yeah, screwed, I would, yeah. Um, you in there. Probably Rust because uh, Rust can do everything Ruby can, but the inverse is not true. Smackdown. There you have it. And I also right. find, like I love Ruby, but I do often find myself working through problems in Ruby by prototyping it in Rust. Good answer, Sean. Thanks so much for joining us. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks for having me. 
All right. Thank you for tuning into the Change Log this week. If you enjoyed this show, share it with a friend, rate us on Apple Podcasts, and thanks to our sponsors, Linode, GoCD, and TopTile. Also, thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. We host everything we do on Linode cloud servers. Head to Linode.com slash changelog. Check them out. Support the show. The changelog is hosted by myself, Adam Stachowiak, and Jared Santo. Editing is done by Jonathan Youngblood. And the awesome music you've been hearing is produced by Breakmaster Cylinder. You can find more episodes just like this at changelog.com or by subscribing wherever you subscribe to podcasts. Thanks for listening.